Wonderful things, these uh, recorders these days. I sometimes think the best thing would be to make the tape at home and then mime to it. Um, I was once at a conference where they were selling the... I was doing the Bible readings at the conference, and uh, one lady, in all seriousness, asked me if she could have the tape, the whole set of the tapes, before the last session, because she wanted to leave early, but uh, she didn't quite seem to see how it worked. Anyway... Right, we're all wired up, and uh, we've got a blue sheet for this session, um, our last but one session, this one called The Spreading Word. Luke and Acts, of course, are really two halves of one book, and so as a way into the Acts of the Apostles, I thought it would be helpful to summarize three new things that the Gospel has achieved uh, as Luke presents the closing chapters of the first half of his work. Uh, We saw in our last session that the gospel is what God has done for humankind in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, supremely in his death uh, as the the atoning sacrifice for our sins and uh, in his glorious resurrection vindicated to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. Now Luke leaves us in no doubt at the end of his gospel as to the new things that have happened as a result of this intervention by God in fulfillment of his promises. Firstly, he has established a new covenant. And uh, Luke 22 is the story of Jesus inaugurating that covenant on the night in which he was betrayed. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, verse 19, and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So what we call the Last Supper is really the first supper. It's the last Passover, in a sense, but it's the first supper of the new uh, era, and it inaugurates, just as the Passover meal did, the redemption that uh, is being brought about for covenant people through the activity of the Lord in providing the sacrificial lamb. Now, Luke wants us to see that then as the conscious fulfillment of the Old Old Testament Exodus story and of all the prophecies that stemmed from that about the suffering servant and the Redeemer who would come and liberate his people. A new covenant through the cross which tears down the barrier uh, between man and God. So moving into the next chapter, Luke chapter 23, that's the point that he makes. I put the uh, two references in reverse order there so that we can get the thrust of that. In verse 45, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And uh, Matthew adds, from the top to the bottom. That is, not by the hands of men, but by the hand of God. Why was it torn in two? Well, because of verses 42 and 43. Remember me when you come into your kingdom... And Jesus is saying to him, this is the coming into the kingdom. This is where you see the king in all his glory, here dying on the cross as the sacrifice for our sins. And therefore I tell you the truth, he says, that today you'll be with me in paradise. So the new covenant leads also to a new creation. The kingdom, if you like, its fulfillment in paradise. And the empty tomb and the appearances of the risen Lord indicate that the cross has been totally sufficient in all that it's set out to achieve. Not only does it tear down the barrier between man and God, but it opens up the kingdom of heaven to all believers. And I think the symbolism of that tearing of the veil of the temple is one that we need constantly to bear in mind as we preach the gospel. That uh, Do you remember how at the end of Exodus, when the glory of God filled the tabernacle, Moses couldn't go in because of the glory, he had to bring an offering, and that was the only way in which he or anyone else could enter the presence of God. But now in the offering of Christ, once for all, for the sins of the whole world on the cross, that full and perfect and sufficient sacrifice is made, and so the barriers torn down. The barrier was always there in the Old Testament. Only the high priest on the Day of Atonement could go into the holiest place of all. Now the curtain's down. Now God says to all the world, you can come into my presence. No more court of the Gentiles, no more court of the women, no more court of the Jewish men, no more holy place, holy of holies, none of that. But access into the very presence of God through the death of his son. And people say to me, oh, that's the simple gospel. I've moved on from the cross. I wonder what they've moved on to. So there's a new covenant and a new creation. 
and the cross is the focus of that. And thirdly, Paul wants us to know that there is a new community, a new community of witnesses who have good news to proclaim. So the risen Lord appears to his disciples and fulfills, again, the prophecies uh, of uh, his own ministry as well as of the Old Testament. Luke 24, verse 7, for example, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. The angels tell the disciples, here's the fulfillment, you've seen the cross, here is the resurrection. And then the resurrected Christ appearing to those disciples in verse 45, um, commissions them to be his witnesses. Let's just pick it up from 44. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. So the whole Old Testament points to me and it all must be fulfilled. Uh, and then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. That's very interesting, isn't it? He didn't give them instant revelation. He gave them a Bible school. If you want to know what God was doing in the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, it seems to me very likely that it was a Bible school for the disciples and that Jesus teaches them from the scriptures so that they may teach others um, with authority and conviction. He told them, this is what's written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead and on the third day, uh, sorry, on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. That, of course, is a very Lucan emphasis, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So you're the ones who are going to start in Jerusalem and preach to all the nations the Christ who has suffered and risen and glorified, and to offer repentance, to call to repentance, and to offer forgiveness of sins through his name. A new covenant, a new creation, a new community. Now, the Acts of the Apostles then shows us this working out as the gospel spreads, the spreading word. Compare the opening statement of Acts uh, at the time of the ascension, where in Acts 1.8 our Lord Jesus promises you will receive power, the Holy Spirit coming on you, and you will be my witnesses. So there's the call to be witnesses in Luke 24 and the ability to be witnesses in Acts 1.8 through the gift of the Spirit in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when we get to the end of the book of Acts, we find that that, of course, is what is happening. Acts 28.31, boldly and without hindrance, Paul preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ there in Rome uh, at the very heart of the empire. So the book takes us from Jerusalem to Rome, from uh, Israel to the very heart of the uh, world empire of the time, from the people of God in the Israeli sense of that to all the nations of the world. And that, of course, is the fulfillment of Genesis 12, verse 3. Uh, Through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And it's the fulfillment of Christ's command at the end of Matthew. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to all the nations, and I am with you all the days even to the end of the age. And as many people have said, that great commission has never been rescinded. We're not yet at the end of the age, and therefore it applies to us uh, as much as to that generation of disciples, that we are to be a missionary church, and our great work in the world, in the power of the Spirit, is to witness to the reality of the gospel of Christ. Well, let's see then how it worked out in the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles through the Holy Spirit, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit perhaps through the Apostles, I don't know which way you want to put it, but clearly it's divine power at work through human channels. Let's first of all look at a structure for Acts. It seems to me that one way of understanding the book, and of course none of these are exclusive, but a way that I've found helpful is to see it as six major sections describing the progress of the Gospel in a new area. And each of those sections has a key statement and then a sort of bookend at the end of it, a summary ending that marks it off as a section. Um, that seems to me to be the pattern. If 1.8 is the contents page, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, the rest of the book shows us how it works. So the first section is Jerusalem. And the key statement is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2 of Acts, which is a marvellous uh, example of Christ-centred biblical evangelism. Uh, if you're talking to people about the content of evangelism, I don't think you can go to a better place than Acts chapter 2 to find it. 
Now, some of it is specific to the culture that he's addressing, the Old Testament quotations, the fulfillment of David, and so on. But as you look at the basic content of what he is proclaiming, you will see that uh, clearly the gospel is defined from the very beginning. For example, in verse 22, he proclaims Jesus of Nazareth, a man. But more than a man, a man accredited by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. Jesus of Nazareth, the man handed over by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and put to death on the cross. But Jesus, who was raised from the dead, freed from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And he explains why in terms of his identity, that he's the Lord, he's the Holy One, and uh, that the resurrection is the proof of that. God's raised this Jesus to life. We're the witnesses. And now he is sending his promised Holy Spirit, pouring out his Spirit upon all those who confess that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Well, the gospel spreads in Jerusalem, 3,000 believers that day. And you know how in chapters 3 and 4 and 5, it goes on telling us very clearly about how the church grows amongst the priests as well, significantly. And then you get the summary ending at 542, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Um, chapter 6 has the little uh, interlude at the beginning about the choosing of the seven, often called the choosing of the deacons. I'm not sure that they were actually officially recognized as deacons, whatever a deacon is. Deacon obviously means basically a servant. Certainly they were set apart aside for a task of serving, which um, uh, happened at this point because it was needed in the church. Incidentally, I, I think it's true to say in the New Testament as a whole that it's far more concerned about function than status. It's not concerned about labeling people and giving them titles. It's concerned about getting the work of gospeling done. And 6, 1 to 7 is there to show us that the work would have stopped over the disagreement about the distribution to the widows had they not provided servants to deal with it so that the apostles could give themselves to their ministry. And what was their ministry? Well, 6.2 it's the ministry of the word of God. And 6.4, we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So we're being told by Luke that that's what's happening. The key agenda is the ministry of the word and prayer. That's what the apostles are about. They mustn't be diverted from that. And anything else that would stop the church from majoring on that has to be dealt with. Then you get the second section from 6.8 to 9.31, where we see the gospel spreading into Judea and Samaria. Here, the key statement is Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin in chapter 7, a long rehearsal of the faithlessness of Israel and of the exaltation of Jesus, um, at whom now, of course, they have killed, but whom God has raised up to his right hand. And at the end of that section... Uh, which includes the persecution of the Jerusalem church and them being scattered abroad. Remember how in 8.1 it says, on the day of Stephen's death a great persecution broke out, and uh, they were all scattered except the apostles. And then 8.4, those who had been scattered, preached the word or gossiped the gospel, as someone has said, wherever they went. Well, the gospel spread as the result of persecution. Um, maybe if that hadn't happened, the Jerusalem church would never have uh, or it would have taken much longer to reach out to Judea and Samaria. But uh, it did happen in the providence of God. And the summary verse that we have is at 9.31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. That's a sort of bookmark, you see. It's saying we've got that far. The gospel now has gone to Judea and Samaria. The church is established, it's growing, the spirit is at work in this wider circle. 9.32 to 12.25 sees the gospel going to Antioch, uh, spreading out now beyond the Judean-Samarian borders. And here the, the key statement is the sermon that uh, Peter preaches when he is called to the house of Cornelius. And uh, there as he begins to explain the gospel and what God has done, and how he talks about the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Remember, the Spirit comes upon those who are listening, and they too are converted and baptized in water, and clearly incorporated 
into the church. For Peter, this is a mind-boggling business, because uh, the vision that he received of the unclean animals in the sheet takes us back to the fact that he didn't want to go to the Gentiles particularly. But God says, you're not to call them unclean. I am incorporating them into my new Israel, into my new community. And Peter's sermon to them, if that's what it was, um, is used by the Spirit to bring them out of the darkness into the light of Christ. The summary verse at the end, 24-25, the word of God continued to increase and spread. And when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now that, of course, then alerts us to the Paul ingredient into which Acts is about to move for the rest of its um, its passages. So, from 13.1 to 15.35, we have the gospel spreading to what we would call Asia Minor, uh, the S- Turkey, I suppose we would call it today. And here, the key statement of the gospel is in Pisidian Antioch uh, in chapter 13, where Paul uh, preaches Christ to the people there. At the end of this session, where he moves from Antioch onto Iconium, and then the return to Antioch in Syria, and uh, the whole business of the Jerusalem Council, at which they decide uh, not to impose Judaistic restrictions on the new Gentile believers, uh, we have the summary verse at 1535, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preach the word of the Lord. Now, notice that the summary verses all concentrate on the word. We talk about church growth. I wonder if we ought not really biblically to talk about word growth. Seems to me that that's what Acts is saying. It's the word of God that is the agency of growth. You can grow churches in all sorts of ways. You could have jugglers at the front and people will come and they'll sit in the pews. Is that a church that's growing? Now, it's the word of God that produces the real growth, isn't it? And we're not to miss that point in Acts. It's as the word is spreading that the church is growing. Um, then the next section, 166 to 1920, is the story of the spread to Europe. Paul's vision of the man of Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And he crosses over to Neapolis. And before long, uh, he's in Philippi. And uh, there you remember, he uh, meets Lydia, whose heart the Lord opens. He's imprisoned. The jailer is converted. And he leaves behind him that little community of Christians uh, in Philippi. I was actually in Philippi a couple of weeks ago. And uh, there are now three Christian families in modern Philippi uh, that they knew of and that I met um, in their church, which is in Neapolis, which is now called Kavala. And there is quite a strong little evangelical congregation there and uh, a witness going on there. But they reckon that in Philippi, in Paul's day, there are about 45,000 people living there. We don't know how big the church was that he left behind. It certainly grew a lot in the years that followed. And you can see ruins of large churches that were built there in later centuries. But it is encouraging to know that there's still a Philippian congregation and that they're still rejoicing in the same Lord Jesus. And uh, it's it's a reminder to us, isn't it, that uh, although in many of these areas, sadly like Turkey and Ephesus and so on, there's very little, if any, gospel life at all now. Um, But uh, God was planting his church in every place. Now, I think the lesson for us is that there is no guaranteed continuance of any church in any geographical setting. Uh, And we mustn't say because this is Britain and it's been Christian Britain, that guarantees anything. God has no spiritual grandchildren unless there is faithful evangelism going on, unless the word of God is being proclaimed and spread everywhere, there will be no next generation of Christians. Uh, And we just need to not get panicky about that, but to see our responsibility to trust God who's committed himself to building his church and to get on with the job. So the gospel spreads to Europe, and to me the key statement is the Areopagus speech of Paul in Athens in chapter 17, where he declares the nature of the unknown God to a superstitious people, and where some at least begin to believe. He moves on then to Corinth, you remember, and um, we have another summary statement after the um, uh, return to Ephesus. So he's gone right the way down from Macedonia in the north through Thessaloniki, down to Corinth, down to Athens, on to Corinth, then back up through the interior and across to Ephesus. Long journey, 
Uh, but all the time, the gospel spreading on the European continent. And uh, at the end, we read in 19 verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Not that it became a more powerful word, but that its power was felt in more and more areas as uh, it spread. And the last section then takes us to Rome uh, through Paul's arrest and imprisonments and the various trials that he endured. There are several key speeches there, particularly, I think, his uh, speeches in chapter 24 before Felix and in chapter 26 before Agrippa, where again he declares the message of the gospel. And as we saw at the end of the chapter, he's still preaching the gospel. Um, Verse 28 of the last chapter, 28-28, Therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Here's the apostle to the Gentiles, affirming, even as the Jews in Rome reject, or some of them do, the gospel, that he's going to go on declaring it to the very end of his life. So the emphasis is on the spread of the word, the message of Christ. The declaration of the gospel is the means by which the church is planted and advances And Luke is very interested, not only in the places, but he's also very interested in the numbers. Uh, Some people get very embarrassed about numbers, and we're certainly not to judge a work of God by numbers. But I'm interested that Luke's interested in numbers himself, and he loves to record the numbers of people who were believing and the fact that the church was constantly growing. That was the expected norm. Now, I know that there are many faithful servants of God who have labored for years and years and not seen great growth. Think of some of our friends who are missionaries in Muslim countries whose faithfulness does not seem to be rewarded. Some of them have perhaps never seen anyone converted or just one or two people. So we must not fall into the trap of measuring faithfulness by numbers. But we must say that the norm in the New Testament is to expect growth and development where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. And we're not to go to the other extreme and say, you know, you in your small corner and I in his. um, And only my little corner is the corner that God is blessing. Uh, No, it's word growth that is happening all the time. As Paul says, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Well, we're left in no doubt, excuse me, going on now to page two as to the substance of the apostolic message. What was it that they heralded? What was the kerygma, as uh, the theologians call it, the content of the message that the heralds proclaimed? Uh, It comes out very clearly for us, but it may be helpful just to summarize it. Old Testament prophecy has been fulfilled. God has intervened in the person of his Son. Jesus the Christ has lived, died, risen again, ascended, and is enthroned in glory. Sins are forgiven through his death on the cross, and the eternal life of God is given in his name. That is, it is given from God through Christ, for he is the only, and he is the complete Savior. And this Jesus will return in judgment, as well as in glory, to bless his people, to judge the living and the dead. So in the light of what is yet to be, he calls on everyone to repent, to believe and to be baptized as an outward sign of their incorporation into the new community, the Church of Jesus Christ, the community of faith. Now, if you analyze those statements all the way through Acts, you'll find that, I think you'll find that that is an accurate summary of the things that the apostles again and again repeat as the gospel spreads. But it's helpful, perhaps, to just focus them into a number of ingredients which center on the person of the Lord Jesus himself. He is, firstly, 2.22 and 10.38, the man of mighty works done by God through him. There is no doubt about his humanity. There is no doubt about the uniqueness of his humanity, in the sense that no other man is like him. No one spoke as he spoke. No one can do the things that he has done. And although he promised that greater things would be done, by which I presume he means the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church following his death and resurrection, no one has ever fed 5,000 people with one boy's lunch. No one has ever stilled the storm as Jesus did. No one has been able 
uh, consistently and constantly to heal by a word at a distance or to raise the dead as he did. He is unique. Secondly, they proclaimed the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Firstly, that he was David's son. That's 2.30 and 13.33, the second line there. David's restored rule occurred at the resurrection. Christ is now raised as son of David, king forevermore. The Davidic line is established for eternity through Jesus, who is declared to be the son of God with power. They declared him as the fulfillment of the suffering servant prophecies. Jesus himself, of course, did that about himself, and the apostles picked it up in chapters 3 and 4, especially the Isaiah 53 references, where his suffering as an atoning sacrifice leads to his exaltation in glory. So Christ, you see, is at the heart of the message. Next, they spoke of him as the promised prophet. Uh, this is um, 3.22 and 7.37. You remember that Moses said that God would raise up a prophet like to him and that he must be listened to, that this would be the prophet who would come. Deuteronomy 18 is the Moses context of that, Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He's the prophet as well as the priest and the king. Next, they declared him as the Messiah, the Christ, 2.36 and 3.18. Twelve times in the Acts of the Apostles, that title is given to Jesus. He is the Christos, the anointed one, the one who comes as the representative of the Father. Therefore, he is the one to be worshipped. And there is no embarrassment or doubt about that in the apostolic gospel. Worshipped in baptism by being baptized into his name. And that is a symbol of giving him total allegiance. Baptism in the name of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is a blasphemy if Jesus is not God. But the apostles had no doubt about the fact that he was, and therefore that they were to baptize in his name as he told them to in Matthew 28. So in obedience to that, they uh, affirm in their worship that Jesus is Lord. They pray to him, Stephen at his martyrdom, chapter 7, Lord Jesus, and again in chapter 9. 2.38, he is the man by whom sins are forgiven. Uh, we saw in Mark 2 that that is a prerogative of God alone, and therefore the offer of forgiveness of sins through Christ is a declaration of his deity. And he is lastly the judge of all. The resurrection is the proof of that, as Paul says in Athens chapter 17, verse 31. And on the basis of that resurrection, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man whom he has appointed. Now, all that gives the lie to the modern theological view that the church deified Jesus, that he was only a man given royal dignity after his death, maybe decades after his death, not according to the Acts of the Apostles and not according to any other part of the New Testament. The, book, the gospel from the very beginning is that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the center and the theme of that gospel. There would have been no church, there would have been no gospeling if those were not the convictions of the apostles. So that's the word which the apostles proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that power of the Holy Spirit, notice, is given to every believer. It wasn't just that the 11 remaining apostles, uh, plus uh, Matthias, who was elected, received the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It was that all who were in the upper room received him. Probably about 120, weren't there, we were told, disciples. And they were all together in one place. And the Spirit filled the whole house. Tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. So the gift of the Spirit in the Acts of the Apostles is the fruit of Christ's victory through the cross and the resurrection, and is the benefit that he bestows upon the whole church. Every Christian receives the Holy Spirit. Paul theologizes that later on in Romans 8 verse 9, when he says if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him, by which he means to say if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. That's what makes you a Christian. So the fruit of Christ's passion and victory and exaltation is that he pours out his Holy Spirit upon his believing church. That is his great gift to his people. 
Uh, Ephesians 4 talks about it in terms of uh, a conquering general who leads the captives triumphantly in his procession and throws out his largesse to the crowds of uh, people who are supporting him and watching his victory. And picking up that image, Paul says of Jesus, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train, he gave gifts to men. And he goes on then to talk about gifts of the Spirit in the context there, gifts of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for the work of the ministry of building up the body of Christ. It's the gift of the Spirit that is the fruit of his passion, the Spirit living within every one of us. And to me, that is one of the points of discontinuity, or perhaps it would be better to say fulfillment, between the Old and the New. It's a difference between them. See, in the Old Testament, you have the Holy Spirit coming upon people at particular times for particular tasks. The Spirit came upon Bezalel in Exodus 31 in order to enable him to be a craftsman in the building of the tabernacle. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The verb means put on Gideon like a suit of clothes. The Spirit of the Lord is looking around and said, I'll wear Gideon today. Well, that sort of idea, you see, that he is the energizing power within Gideon. But the Spirit came and went. The Spirit came upon David, but left Saul. And David, after his adultery, prays, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, Psalm 51. But in the New Testament, there is the indwelling Spirit within every believer's inner life. Now, for me, the key to that is the reference in John's Gospel, where Jesus himself is speaking, John 7, 37 to 39. Let's just quickly look at that before we move into Paul. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And then a comment by John, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been lifted up, Jesus had not yet been glorified, equals cross in John's Gospel. So the gift of the Spirit is dependent on the cross. Now, on the Feast of Tabernacles, every day, the priests would draw water from the Pool of Siloam, take it up to the temple, and pour it out as a thank offering to God's sustaining grace in the desert. But on the last day of the feast, there was no procession, there was no pouring out of the water. There was just a great thanksgiving service. And as people are going into that, Jesus stands in the temple courts and says, are you still thirsty? You've seen this great ritual going on day after day. Are you a thirsty person? Well, then you'll find in me real satisfaction. All that the water in the desert spoke of, I fulfill. I am the one who, if you believe on me, which is what drinking must mean, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink, whoever believes in me, then within you there will be a source of spiritual life, of living water, which will flow from within out. Notice it's plural, streams. Not a tiny little trickle, but streams of living water from within flowing out. By this he meant the Spirit. But the Spirit was given, you see, after the cross. First the cross, then Pentecost. And it was because of the work of Christ on the cross that the Spirit was poured out as the gift of the ascended victorious Lord upon his people. And the Spirit now lives within every believer. So that when I turn to Christ in repentance and faith, the Spirit of God indwells me in a way that has been made possible through his work on the cross. So there is, I think, a discontinuity there and also a continuity. It's a fulfillment, really that we enjoy uh, so much more of that indwelling of the Spirit than many of the Old Testament um, uh, believers could have known. And that, of course, explains why the Word of God is so central to the mission of the church, because the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to make children of God. It also shows why it's so foolish for 20th century Christians to try and separate Word and Spirit. You cannot do it. The Spirit of God is the author of the Word of God. The Word of God is the tool that the Spirit of God chooses to use. There can be no spiritual work, no spiritual advance without the Word of God. Whatever else is happening in the church, if the Word of God is not being proclaimed, there cannot be a work of the Spirit of God in any depth or length or enduring nature because the Spirit is committed to the Word. He inspired it. He illuminates those who seek his guidance as they read the Word. 
He uses the word to bring us to faith. None of us became Christians without the word of God and the spirit of God. So that's what our ministry is all about. The spirit is the enabling power. The word is the content. And in the midst of all this, you see, God is spreading that word through his spirit across the ancient world. And he selects, much as he did Abraham, really, in the Old Testament, an extraordinary man who becomes the author of no less than 13 New Testament books, a man who is going to become in himself a sort of example of this gospel and the way in which it can utterly revolutionize and turn around an individual's life. I'm talking, across, of course, about Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul. Have you ever asked yourself why there are three accounts of Paul's conversion in the Acts of the Apostles? I mean, uh, it could be stated that he, uh, he spoke the account of his conversion in three different uh, occasions, but why so much detail? Well, because Paul is an example of the gospel. In Paul's life, you see everything that he preaches being worked through, being worked out. And as he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles and takes the gospel beyond the boundaries of Jewry, so the three stages of his own ministry are sort of reflected in his life. Firstly, there's the pioneering mission stage when he's knocked off uh, his uh, horse and falls into the dust on his way to Damascus and confesses Christ as Lord. Then there's the discipling stage as he is, first of all, um, visited by uh, Ananias, and then later as he has his time in the uh, Arabian desert and as he eventually goes up to Jerusalem and meets with the apostles when the gospel has been revealed to him personally by God. And then there is the ongoing mission stage. And the church, you see, goes through those stages, pioneering mission, discipling converts, reaching out further. So Paul's ministry is in itself a fleshing out of the reality of the gospel. It has within it both continuity and development. Continuity in that clearly Paul's message is the same charisma, the same content as the sermons in Acts before the Gentile mission ever began. Romans 1, chapter, uh, verses 1 to 6, emphasize this continuity at the heart of what Paul is proclaiming. Just turn with me to this magnificent passage which begins that magisterial letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. There's a definition of himself in one sentence. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So Paul is saying the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in this gospel. I recognize that. Jesus, son of David, son of God, is Lord of all. It's regarding, this good news, is regarding God's son who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Same gospel, same message as all the apostles preached. So there is a solidarity with the apostles. And the Galatians reference under 1b there uh, makes that point. Paul is very aware of the fact that God has laid hold on him for a particular job. But in Galatians 2 verse 9, he says that when he went to Jerusalem, James, Peter and John, reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. So there's a solidarity with the apostles. We know that there came a point at which Paul opposed Peter in the second part of that chapter. Things were not always easy. There was a proper uh, public uh, exposure of what Peter was doing, which was really playing a sort of a double game. But fundamentally, in terms of their, um, their commitment to this gospel and recognizing that they had different fields in which to work, Paul stands with all the other apostles. They gave him the right hand of fellowship. They realized that his gospel was the same gospel as theirs. But it's interesting that in one twelve, just to turn back a page in Galatians, Galatians one twelve, he says, I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. 
Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. That, of course, is why he's an apostle. The apostles are eyewitnesses and recipients of the direct revelation of the gospel. And as Paul received it, though, as he says, one born out of time, because he wasn't amongst the original group, but by this special act of God, so his apostolic authority is as great as any of the others, and they are solidly together in proclaiming the same gospel. It's also solidarity, point C, with the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself. And uh, those references in 1 Corinthians 7 and Romans 15 point out how foundational to Paul the teaching of Jesus is. That's a big subject. We can't go into detail. But when people say, you know, Jesus taught one thing and Paul went and ruined it all, um, and uh, the whole thing now is different, there is really no foundation for saying that. Paul certainly developed the gospel in his teaching under the inspiration of the Spirit, but development is not the same thing as disagreement. So let's look at how it developed over the page under section 2. There's no doubt about the fact that the Apostle Paul is the greatest mind of the New Testament. He developed a wonderfully clear theology. His language is sometimes difficult and the vocabulary to us may sometimes be unfamiliar, but the logical drift of Paul's teaching is as clear as daylight, and expounding the arguments of Paul is a wonderfully satisfying piece of study. Um, don't get for this idea that Paul was somehow a sort of narrow-minded little bigot. He was a great-hearted, great-thinking, uh, amazing missionary statesman. But he developed it in three ways. He developed the fulfillment of prophecy into a full-scale philosophy of history. Uh, in other words, he broadens it as the apostle to the Gentiles, always keeping the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as the heart of it. But he goes further. He says, what is God doing with his world? Now the gospel is for all the nations. Now you see that in the way in which he picks up the idea of the first Adam and the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. Not, you see, just restricting it to uh, the Abrahamic covenant, but going right back to creation and saying, in Jesus, all that was implicit in creation is being fulfilled. The first Adam and now the last Adam, where uh, the first one fell, the last Adam triumphs. Or, for example, the way in which in Galatians 3.24, he talks about the law as our pedagogue to bring us to Christ. Uh, NIV, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So he again, you see, takes that Old Testament prophecy and he says now, that leads us to Christ, the law, because we cannot fulfill it. We run to Christ, as Luther said. We crawl to him, saying, Lord, you must help us. And he incorporates us then into a new humanity because we are united to Christ by faith. Christ is the king of the whole universe, the sovereign Lord over all creation. And therefore in him all the old distinctions between Jew and Gentile, bond and free, male and female even, are transcended. Now it doesn't mean that people stop being Jews or stop being slaves or stop being male, but it means that those distinctions have no continuing significance in Christ. There are differences of function, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. That whole sort of view of the work of Christ bringing in a new creation and bringing history to its fulfillment is very Pauline. Secondly, 2b, he develops the basis of the gospel call. This Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, says Peter on the day of Pentecost. Now Paul, if you like, takes that text and he expands it. This Jesus this incarnate Christ who died and rose and who confronts everyone, who offers peace to all who believe. See, Paul's theology is really fundamentally a Christology. It's all about Christ. It's all about exploring who Jesus is. Characteristic in Paul's theology is this whole idea, which comes in Romans particularly, of being united to Christ by faith. That what the response to the gospel does is to graft us into the vine. It's an organic union. To unite us as members of the body to Christ, who is the head. It's a relational, vital uh, connection that is made by the gospel. Now, all of that theology of the Christian life as union with Christ is Pauline. As we open our lives to Christ, 
So he seals us by his spirit as belonging to him. He unites us to himself. We share in his death. We share in his resurrection, Romans 6, through the new birth. We are a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. Because the central saving reality is that he not only forgives us, but he establishes us as righteous in God's sight. And what we could never do, God himself in Christ does for us and unites us to him so that we are clothed in his righteousness and we stand in him before God's throne. He develops the fulfillment of prophecy, A. He develops the basis of the gospel, B. And he develops the moral imperative of Christian living, C. He develops the moral imperative. Theologians often talk about the kerygma, by which they mean the gospel, and the didache, which is a word that simply means the teaching. And they sometimes uh, try to separate them out. Is this gospel? Is this didache? But you see, the kerygma implies the didache. And the teaching depends on the gospel. And Paul weaves them together all the way through his work. He is always saying to us, be what you are. Know what it is to be a Christian, and then be it. Live a life of love as Christ loved us and gave himself up, Ephesians 5. I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. That's your spiritual worship, Romans 12. We all looking at Jesus with unveiled face are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And all of those strands that run through Paul's thinking is that the doctrine of grace in the gospel means that we must live godly lives. Someone has expressed it, I think, very helpfully by saying doctrine is grace and ethics is gratitude. Doctrine is grace and ethics is gratitude. And living a godly life is gratitude for grace. It's not winning our way to heaven, but it's receiving the free grace of God and living in a way that pleases the Heavenly Father. Now, that's a Pauline emphasis that the motivation for the Christian life is thankfulness. Well, what about Paul's letters? Oh, dear, oh, dear, the time goeth on. You know how you can find your way through the epistles, don't you, if you get stuck? If, as long as you remember that Romans and Corinthians comes first, then it's A-E-I-O-U. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and you cheat with the last one and make it Thessalonians, and it goes A-E-I-O-U. Well, actually, Thessalonians comes first. In time, one and two Thessalonians, Thessalonians are early letters. Remember, as Paul comes into Europe, uh, he uh, visits Thessalonica, and uh, he soon gets turned out after about three weeks. But he's very concerned about the church, and he writes to them from Corinth, his first letter, and probably the second one not long after that. Uh, it's all about what it means to live as gospel people in the light of the second coming. If you want uh, the more detailed Pauline stuff on the second coming of Jesus, it's there in Thessalonians. shows that he taught it from the very beginning. And it attacks the false teaching that was around in even in that early stage uh, in the Thessalonian church. Uh, lots of practical business in Thessalonians about living the Christian life because it's a young church that he wants to establish in godly living. In Galatians, you remember, the uh, focus is the false teachers who said, basically, yes, you become a Christian by believing the gospel, but you must add circumcision and keeping the Jewish law. So Galatians is a treatise against anybody who says the gospel plus makes you acceptable with God. There's plenty of that around today, isn't there? The gospel plus, our little bit that our little group says you have to believe. Well, in Paul's day, it was circumcision. It made you a member of the in-group. Plenty of Christian cults that flourish in that sort of way. You see, once you were circumcised, you belonged to them. And they got you. And they were interested in building their little group, their party spirit. And Paul says, no, it's the gospel of Christ alone. That magnificent epistle that meant so much to Martin Luther and to the reformers, which we need to go back to again and again. First Corinthians, next dated around 54, and Second Corinthians not long after. The division in the church at Corinth, of course, is the reason for this. Lots of uh, subjects that were treated it was a newly established church in a pagan environment, a very immoral environment, and their standards of belief and behavior 
often slipped. There was a lot of pride, a lot of criticism, criticism of Paul too. So 1 Corinthians is an important letter in establishing what matters most in the church. And 2 Corinthians attacks the rival apostles who rubbished Paul's authority with their rival gospel. It's a spirited defense of his apostleship and of his motives and methods in ministry. It's a very personal letter to Corinthians, expounding his own life as an example of Christian service. Then we have Romans, the mighty letter, uh, which expounds the great truths of the gospel, righteousness by faith, and its implications. Romans 1.17, the key verse, those who are righteous by faith shall live. How do you get righteous by faith, and how do you live as a righteousified person? what Romans is all about, 1 to 8 about righteousness by faith and its implications, God's plan for Israel and the Gentiles, and then those practical chapters at the end on Christian living. There are Romans in 50 seconds, that's appalling, isn't it? Ephesians and Colossians, the latter focuses the false teaching again more clearly. Notice how many of Paul's letters teach the truth against the background of error. He uses the error to teach the truth, and... um, He teaches the truth into the error, conscious that the truth will make the error fall. Colossians, it was a sort of form of mystical spirituality that said uh, uh, Christ is only one of a number of spiritual intermediaries who control our lives and provide access to God. There's fullness beyond Jesus. He's a stage in the process, but there's something greater. And Paul establishes the supremacy of Christ and fullness in him alone. And in Ephesians, he develops that with regard to the gospel and the church. It's the great letter about the church, what the church is to be doing. And then in Philippians, near the end of his life, when the persecution is beginning to hot up a little bit more and the Roman Empire is turning against the church, Philippians is a wonderful letter about keeping on gospeling, keeping the gospel first, even if it is costly, even if you suffer. Following Christ's steps, keep on keeping on and keep the far horizon clear. And then there are the other letters to Philemon, to Timothy and Titus, which we'll come to in the last session. So, what is Paul's passion? I can only just touch on the outline. Maybe this will encourage you to go back and do some study on this yourself. But it's, I think, a a great theme to explore. Philippians 3 says that I may know Christ. Christ is his passion, who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what that means in practice. 